Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, if you're a preschooler, you can see you can be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. Colleen's over here at the door in front of the sound booth. She'd love to uh, take take you down to Children's Church. Um, and it's a big day for our kids, as you've already seen. Uh, they did a great job leading us in uh, the song at the beginning of our worship service this morning, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for all the work that the kids and teachers have done over the last few weeks to help them get ready for that. And they actually, our elementary age kids, had a experience during our Sunday school hour this morning of walking through uh, the, the proof for the resurrection, uh, of why we can believe that Jesus truly from the dead. They had some special guests today. They had uh, the Apostle Thomas, which I'm, I'll break the news to the kids that are here right now. That wasn't actually the Apostle Thomas. It was me, um, in case you guys, sorry to burst that bubble if you hadn't figured that out yet. And there was a Roman Jeff Chesney. So if you see Jeff in a Roman soldier outfit this morning, uh, it's because my outfit was easier to get out of than Jeff's was. And so that's why he's still in his costume and I'm not. He didn't. That wasn't totally by choice, but but maybe partially. Um, but all of that. I say all of that to say this is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of this week where we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And since we're not having Sunday school next week, our kids were reflecting on that truth this morning. But we are going to be focusing on that as a church over the next few days. And I hope you will come and be a part of it uh, because we will have our Good Friday service. Uh, on this Friday at 6.30 right here in this room, we'd love to have you join us for that. Uh, on next Sunday, we will be having our Easter breakfast at 8 a.m. Uh, right out here in the Fellowship Hall, and then we'll be having two services uh, on Easter Sunday. Try to make room for all the people that we're having next week. hope you'll come be a part of that. If there are people that you want to invite to come be a part of any of that over these next few days, we have some postcards out at the Welcome Center we'd love for you to take and, and use that as a as a segue to try to invite someone to come be a part of things here in the next few days. But it doesn't stop Easter, uh, because the Sunday after Easter, we're having the pie auction. Uh, We've settled into trying to do that the Sunday after Easter as a way to invite people to come and be a part of what's maybe the most fun I have ever been a part of here, so we hope you'll come be a part of that. And then the Sunday after that, Isaac and I will be hosting pizza and pastors, which we try to do couple times a year and we always say those are pizza and pastors is for three types of people it's for people who are new around here and want to learn more about Marion it's for people that are around here a while and want to figure out ways that they can get more involved in the life of Marion and it's for people uh, that like pizza and won't mind listening to Isaac and I talk for a little while so if any of that applies to you or that piques your interest at all feel free to talk to Ike or I over the next couple weeks and we'd love to to share more with you about what that looks like and how you can come be a part of that. But as we've been doing all of that, we have all that programming going on, events going on, things like that. We've been preparing ourselves for Easter uh, with this sermon series we've been in, Liberated, where we've been tracing the theme of delivering his people that we find across scripture out of bondage into life with him. From the beginning of the story of Scripture, even in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, humanity sets this pattern of running away from God's desires. And the result of that pattern every single time results in bondage, bondage to the rulers of sin and death. 
life, and we have each followed that pattern in our own ways. And yet every single time that pattern repeats itself, God comes to his people by his grace to set them free for life with him. We've seen this happen as God frees his people out of slavery in Egypt. He establishes this covenant relationship with his people where he commits to love and care for them and he calls them to reflect his glory to the world. He raises up kings to lead them into his purposes for them. And as he does this, we saw in Psalm 107 a couple weeks ago, God calls his people to participate in that life by celebrating what he's done, by responding to all that he has done to deliver them with their worship. Because God's goal for his people has always been that we have life with him, that we would flourish within a covenant relationship with him, the relationship we were created to have. And that relationship is not for one specific group of people, one specific nation. It is something God intends to share with the entire world. And Isaac walked us through the book of Jonah last week. Words. Uh, Because Jonah doesn't want to go to the city of Nineveh, even though God calls him to go there. And he, he doesn't want to go there because he doesn't want them to experience the love and the compassion of God. And yet God's desire is to extend his love to all the nations. And that's the goal of God's liberation, even down to today, even for you and me, that we would be liberated into life with our God. And we never find that goal fully realized in the Old Testament. Isaac showed us last week, the book of Jonah ends in a strange way with this rhetorical question. God says to Jonah, shouldn't I care about the people of the city of Nineveh? And then the book ends. And we can make together from context if we're paying attention that the answer to that question is obviously yes God cares about the city of Nineveh he wants Jonah to care about the city of Nineveh we can infer that but the answer is never fully clearly given there's this hope that as God's people live this life with him that he desires for them that more and more people will come and participate in that relationship but we never see that hope fully realized and said we find God's people worshiping other gods, rebelling against his purposes and his way, and the end result of all of that is that God's people are sent into exile. They're oppressed by foreign nations again, just as they were all the way back when they were in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And through the end of the Old Testament and into that time in between the Old and the New Testaments that we refer to as the intertestamental period, we know that there is a restlessness among God's people. They want to be free. They want to have this liberation. They want to be able to live the life with God that God created them for. And they get hints at it every now and then. Freedom from foreign nations, their own independent state. And yet it's always in fits and starts. And it's not long before someone else will come in and conquer them again. This promise from the Old Testament never quite comes to fulfillment. So as we start reading the gospel, we, the story of Jesus, we find God's people are living in the promised land. They're living in the land God promised to give them, but they're living there under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so as much as it is technically home, it sure doesn't feel like life with God as he desired. And so the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are each telling us the story of Jesus within that world around them, showing us how Jesus comes to bring liberation and yet as the story progresses 
we find time and time again, Jesus doesn't bring liberation in quite the way the world around him might expect. This morning, we're going to be looking at the opening, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible and want to open it up uh, to have it in front of you, the words will be on the screen as we read it. But what we will see, John makes clear from the very beginning of his Gospel, is that Jesus is not like anyone that's ever come before him. He's not another prophet that God has called to come and call the people to repent of their sin and act as God has called them to act. He's not another priest who is coming to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and teach them who God is. He's not another king who is coming to lead a military campaign. He's so much more than any of that. He's not someone God has sent. He is God himself taking on human flesh. He's far greater than any that have come before him because he's come to complete a task far greater than any have done before. He's not coming to institute reforms, be they political, religious, or from a military level. They are, those reforms always fall so far short. He is God himself, the creator of all things, who has come as a human being so that his people, even you and me, might be liberated finally and fully from sin and death for life with our God. Let's see how John shows us that beginning in John 1. I want to read down to verse 5. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. If you were to be asked, who is Jesus? You could respond in any number of ways that would be accurate. You could say, well, he was a guy, he founded a movement called Christianity. It started about 2,000 years ago, and since then it's spread all across the globe. He has followers in every time zone this day, to this day. You could say he was a Jewish rabbi. He lived in the first century. He had some interesting things to say. You could say, well, he was a carpenter from the town of Nazareth. Uh, He spent three years traveling around, preaching and teaching and performing miracles. And and eventually the religious and political authorities conspired to have him put to death. And three days later, he raised from the dead. Maybe you are not fully convinced in any of those claims. You could say, well, he and his followers claim he was the son of God, but I'm not so sure And you could say some combination of any of those things, and they would be fair and accurate as far as they go. But none of those descriptions go far enough for John. Because John says here that Jesus is the the Greek word translated word, there is logos. That's who Jesus is, the eternal word of God, the creator of all things, the light of life. That word logos was used by ancient philosophers to refer to an ordinary principle of the universe, this force that gives structure and guidance to life. It was a mediator between humanity and the gods to give order to things. And there were Jewish writers in the ancient world that heard all of that from philosophers and tried to make the connection between that and wisdom in the Old Testament. Because if you read through the book of Proverbs, wisdom has a pretty high stature. Uh, Wisdom will be discussed as this thing that exists alongside God, that helped God in creating the universe, and that if you listen to what wisdom has to say, it will make you wise and you can grow into all God created you to be. 
And so you have all of this going on in the world around John, and John hears all of that, and he says to Greek philosophers and to Jewish writers alike that, sure, you're moving in the right direction, but you've missed it. Because this idea you've been mulling over, it's only fully understood in Jesus. The Word, the the Logos, it's not some impersonal force that's out there. It is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the perfect expression of what the world has been searching for. He is the one who has come to make God known. Yet as John takes that concept from the world around him, he morphs it by saying that Jesus does not go between God and humanity, but he is God himself. And that would make most philosophically minded people in John's day pause. I mean, no matter what you actually believe about God, most people agreed in John's day that there'd have to be some sort of distance between this world and God. Because if we are being honest, this world's kind of messy sometimes. I mean, we live in a world that has disease and decay and conflict and people that hurt one another and natural disasters. And sometimes the Wi-Fi quits working and you have no idea why. So you just have to keep unplugging and plugging it back in and hoping one time it's going to work. In the thinking of the ancient world, you need things like the Logos to bridge that gap, to explain how we ended up with this world that is so broken. But instead, John says the Word is God. The Word was there at creation because the Word is God himself, bringing it all about. Nothing in this world, no matter how imperfect it might be, no matter how imperfect it might seem, not even you and me with all of our imperfections and faults, none of it was made without the creative, invested work of God. The one who is himself, the light of life, is the one responsible for all things. And we could reflect on that truth for a long time and go in all sorts of different directions and never fully get to the bottom of all that it means. But if nothing else, I tell you all of that to tell you that if the word is God, that means if nothing else, God is nearer than we thought. My guess is there's no one here that would call themselves a Stoic, a Platonist, or a Neoplatonist this morning. If you would, let's have a conversation later. But in our world where there is so much we can handle on our own there's very little things day to day that we cannot handle either just by our own abilities or by pulling out a smartphone we can slip into assuming pretty easily that God is not present and active sure he's out there somewhere he's vaguely aware of what's going on he shows up in my life when there are big things happening but generally he keeps his distance And to those of us that would assume that, I think John would say to us, no, no, God is nearer than you think. And if he's nearer than we think, he must want more to do with us than we think as well. Because if the word, God himself, created us and is the light of life shining in the darkness, and no matter where that darkness comes from or how dark it feels, it does not overcome the world. God is nearer than we thought, and whatever we want to say about who Jesus is, we should factor that truth in. John is right, then we can't just say Jesus was a nice guy, he had some interesting things to say, but really at the end of the day, he just wants us to be nice to one another, and that's kind of all that matters. If John is right, we can't just say, well, he was a carpenter, and he kind of got on the wrong side of the authorities of his day. Now, if John is right and God is nearer than we thought, we need to look at what he has to say more often than just when life is difficult. 
if John is right, we can't just think Jesus goes in the religious box of life, but I have my religious box and it stays over there and I have all these other boxes of life and those two, and that box doesn't interact with all the other boxes. If John is right, we can't just think that faith in Jesus is something that shows up around Christmas and Easter. If John is right that the word of God created all things to bring light and life to push back the darkness, we have something very different on our hands and we should listen accordingly. God created all things, including you and me, for relationship with him. And he has been preparing the way since creation itself so that he might be a part of his family, which John expands on in the next few verses, picking up at verse 6. He says, there was a man whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. If the word is God, that means God is nearer than we thought. But God was going to come even nearer because the word intended to come into this world to shine light in the darkness and offer a way into that light of life. And we're not done unpacking that truth this morning, but before we go further with that truth, John zooms out a little bit and pauses to help us get our arms around what was done to prepare the way for that. Because if you've ever tried to wake someone up or have been woken up yourself by someone just flipping the lights on in the bedroom to get you out of bed in the morning, you know it's a lot to take in and it usually doesn't go all that well. Or maybe you've experienced going to a movie theater and it's still daylight out. Like you walk out of the movies and the sun's still up and you just feel like that shouldn't be allowed. That you've been sitting in darkness for two or three hours and then you go outside and there's still like a day happening and you have to go about your business like normal. But when our eyes are accustomed to darkness, it takes a while before they are ready for light. So when the light of God was going to come into the world, the switch didn't just get flipped to begin to turn those lights on slowly god sent a man named john we tend to refer to him as john the baptist and he came to prepare the way for the light for the word to tell people god is on the way and you need to get ready for that and crowds of people would travel out into the wilderness to hear john the baptist preach to be baptized by him in the jordan river and he said the interesting things he was this odd guy he wore camel hair as his clothes and he ate bugs and wild honey for his food and people were amazed by what he had to say there were all sorts of rumors about who he might be and what God was doing through him but he would say time and time again that there is someone greater on the way as great as John was he was a preview of coming attractions he was a nightlight helping you see your way around, but pretty soon a spotlight was going to be flipped on, and when that happened, there would be some who would be preparing for it and would be ready, and there would be some who would run away, would bury their head in the pillow because they preferred the darkness. And to hear an announcement like that from someone like John, that the light of the world is coming, that can sound intimidating. Because a bright light's a lot to take in. 
We have two spotlights on the back wall of this room right now, and I can tell you from experience that when they are on full blast and you're up here on this stage, it gets bright and warm pretty quick. Uh, the first Good Friday I was here, that was right at the beginning of COVID, so we were live streaming the service uh, to all of you watching at home, and my only role in the service really was to read scripture, and so I was standing about right here on this stage reading scripture throughout the service, and I was trying every now and then, because you all were at home, and I thought you might want to see my face, I would try every now and then to try to look up at the camera that's right back here uh, in front of me. But if you notice, if you look back there, don't everyone look at once, but back there, the spotlight is right above that camera. So I'm up here, I'm reading, and every now and then I'd look up and it was like getting hit by a truck every time you looked up and it was, the light was hitting you in the face and then you'd have to look back down and you're supposed to be reading and you can't see anything and it took a little bit to, to recalibrate like that because light, light is bright and disorienting. A couple Christmas Eves ago, I was up here speaking, and we had the spotlights on, both of them full blast on me while I was up here, and I remember having the thought about 10 minutes in, I better start wrapping this up, because if not, I'm going to start sweating up here, because those things are warm. Light can be a lot to take in. We might have similar thoughts when we read God himself, the creator, the ruler of all things, he is coming into the world, and he is coming as light into the darkness like the darkness. Our eyes might be adjusted to it. I mean, maybe we know it could be better, but if we're honest, we're content with how things are. We don't mind stubbing our toes in the darkness every now and then if it means that no one knows what I'm up to and I can just go about my business on my own terms. And God's light coming into the world seems to want to mess that arrangement up. Yet at the same time, we all know light is not all bad and overbearing. Sure, light brings heat, but if you are freezing, it means you will survive. If something is wrong, you need a light to get a good look at the problem so that you can know what, can be, what needs to be done to fix it. Light shining in darkness brings cleansing. It, it gets rid of those things that fester and grow in darkness and bring death. And Jesus comes to bring us that light of life. It's a light that can catch us off guard if we're not ready for it. It's a light that can cause us to run away if we prefer the darkness, but it is a light that will bring us healing and cleansing if we let it do its work. If we come into this light, we find life that invites us into the family of God. We find freedom from bondage because God himself, the light of life, is coming to set us free. That light of life will transform all things, and these last few verses explain how that is possible. Picking up in verse 14, it says, The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Word of God, the light of life, takes on flesh and makes his dwelling among us. God has come near in the past. At the exodus, the cloud of his glory is in the midst of his people, leading them as they 
travel in the wilderness. When the tabernacle and the temple get built in the Old Testament, God's presence dwells there. We have one specific place on earth where heaven and earth intersect. But as amazing as all that is, there is always separation. Only some can come into the presence of God and it's only for a limited period of time and it's only for specific purposes and it's only after you've gone through specific preparations for that to happen because God is too holy, too perfect, too magnificent for sinful humanity to survive being in his presence. The prophet Isaiah experiences God's presence at the beginning of his ministry. He says he sees the train of his robe. Isaiah essentially says, I saw the bottom of God's shoe And it was so much to take in. I thought for sure I was going to die. It was so incredible, so magnificent. And I I realized I was a sinful human being and there was nothing I could do. And I thought that was going to be it for me because that is how incredible the presence of God is. A sinful person cannot stand the presence of a holy and perfect God and expect to survive the ordeal. And so there needs to be separation. The thinking of the philosophers around John, you have... Sure, stories of God's coming down every now and then, becoming, taking on human form or something like that, but they would never want to hang around for very long. I mean, you have the gods, you have the divine, they live, it lives up in the heavens, but our world is kind of messy and dirty and contaminating and gross, so why would God ever want to come down into this world? Why leave the splendor of heaven for this mess? Instead, the whole line of thinking would be that the whole point is to detach from this world, to get away however you can. John says, in response to all that, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word. Jesus did not pass through and say hi on his way to vacation somewhere else. The Word bought a house changed his address, settled in, embraced the limitations of humanity to be a part of this world. Instead of looking at our world as something to be escaped, he looked at it as something to redeem into everything he intended for it to be. He did not leave us in our mess. He did not send us an email with some recommendations for how we could fix it ourselves. He came to dwell among us so that he might bring us what we truly need, the presence of God with us and for so that we might be liberated for life with God. If a kid is scared or hurt, there are all sorts of things that could be done to try to help them through that. Maybe just the first hearing adult on the scene could, could be of some assistance, but if that adult is a complete stranger, it probably doesn't matter how nice they are, how good of care they are, it probably won't bring that child much comfort. I mean, maybe a parent sends an older sibling to go deal with it themselves, and maybe that's better, maybe that's worse, depending on the kid that you send. But that's not going to fully fix the problem. It seems like most of the time, a child won't be truly happy, content, and healed until the arms of a loving parent are around them. Because a personal connection with the one who understands the problem and can fix it is the best way to bring healing. And that's what happens when Jesus comes to dwell among us. God is not sending an intern on his behalf. God himself is leaving the best parts of heaven for the worst parts of earth to take on all our limitations and brokenness so that he may bring us the true and lasting healing we need. John the Baptist prepared the way for that so that we could be set free. When we look to all Jesus is and all he's come to accomplish, we find the full revealing of who God is, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the definitive testimony 
on who God is. We could go around in circles if we wanted, and there are people in the world who do it to say, well, I like to think that God's kind of like this, or I would prefer to think that God's kind of like that. And that in itself is not horrible on its own, unless what we come up with does not align with what Jesus tells us. Because Jesus is God, and he declares to us who God is. Not our feelings, not what we've heard or been told, not the prevailing opinions of the day. Jesus reveals who God is by coming near to us, and when Jesus comes near to us and we come near to him, we find grace. The New International Version we've been reading from this morning says, grace and grace already given. Grace on top of grace, like waves crashing on a shore. One of my professors in college said, it's like if I laid a dollar bill down in front of you and as soon as you picked that dollar bill up, every time I put another one down and it didn't matter how many times you picked it up, I never ran out of dollar bills. That's the image John is giving us there of the grace of God being shown to us in Jesus. But it is not just grace. John says Jesus came full of grace and truth. And truth tend to be treated as if they're in competition. You can either show someone grace and sweep what they've done under the rug, or you can show them truth, and sure they might not like it, and sure it might offend them, but that's just the way it is. Yet Jesus comes full of both grace and truth, fully and perfectly. Grace and truth together points out wrongs, it corrects, but it does it in a way that is loving, and it's for the good of the person being corrected. Grace and truth does not minimize wrongs done, it does not allow sin to continue, but it can corrects it in a way that brings healing to everyone involved. And that is how Jesus comes to this earth. He comes with an inexhaustible abundance of grace, not grace that allows us to remain as we are. He comes full of truth, but not truth that beats us down until we give in. Grace and truth held perfectly together brings transformation and healing because it meets us in our bondage and liberates us into life with God. That's the sort of liberation we need. If I were to ask you right now what you want liberation from, and you were honest, I don't know what you would say. Maybe you want healing for you or for a loved one. Maybe you want relief from stress. Maybe you want your debts to be paid off. You need some relief from the standards you set for yourself you can never seem to meet. I don't know what problems in life you would ask to magically go away if you could have a wish granted this morning, but I know that often the liberation we want is so much smaller than the liberation Jesus comes to bring us. I think that's the truth of Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into town and there is a Excitement among those that are following him. He's on a donkey. They are looking forward to liberation from the Roman Empire. They believe he, a Messiah is going to come and bring that liberation. And Jesus is saying and doing a lot of things that makes them think that he's the Messiah. So they go get palm branches. They put their robes down. They roll out the red carpet as Jesus comes into Jerusalem because they're thinking it won't be long now and we are going to be set free from Rome. Yet it's an odd scene. Because for one, Jesus comes into town on a donkey, which is not what you ride when you're a king coming to conquer. If you're coming in to conquer a city, you ride in on a horse. If you're coming to bring peace, you ride a donkey. And that's maybe a sign for us that whatever Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to do in this week, that will be the last week of his earthly life and ministry, it's not exactly what these crowds are expecting. He's not come to conquer his enemies. In fact, he's going to be conquered by them. 
He's not come with a sword and an army. He's come with grace and truth. He's not come to defeat Rome. He's come to defeat sin and death through his own death and resurrection. He's come to bring light into darkness because he's not a human Messiah riding into town to impose his agenda. He comes as God himself, the creator, entering into the mess of his creation so that he might bring light to darkness, set it free, set this world free from its bondage, deliver us into the life God desires for us. And that is how Jesus comes to be our liberator. But because this is not the liberation the crowds were asking for, they don't receive him. The crowds, like each and every one of us, like humanity has always done, they choose darkness instead of the light. They choose death instead of life. Just as we all have done, we all choose bondage on our own terms, liberation on God's. Yet Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross for us so that we might be set free, so that sin and death and darkness might be done away with forever and we might have the life with our God that we were created for. There's a story about the author Robert Louis Stevenson, who's the author of Treasure Island and other books, that when he was growing up in Scotland in the 1800s, one night he saw a lamplighter going about his business. And of course, this, these were the days before electricity, and so a lamp. A lamplighter would walk through town with a torch and go to each individual street light and climb up and light it so that there could be light on the street. And the story goes that Robert Louis Stevenson, a child, sees this happening and he points to it and he says, everyone, he says, look at that man. He's punching holes in the darkness. I don't know what kind of darkness you're living in right now. I don't know what bondage you feel trapped under, but I know Jesus has come to punch a hole in it. Because he has come to be our liberator. He has come to bring us light and life with him. And as we stand here at the beginning of this week of Easter, I know it's a busy time. I started this sermon by running through all the things we've got going on over the next three weeks. And that's just here in this building. I know you've got things going on. I know you've got Easter clothes to buy and eggs to find and ham to eat and all of those things. And none of them are bad. But don't let any of those things be a little candle that comes in and lights up your darkness for a day or two and then burns out. Come to the one who has come to this earth to punch a hole in our darkness for all time. To bring light that will never go out. Step into life with the one who has come to bring us liberation. Experience his lavish grace and truth that's come to set us free. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are light and you is no darkness at all and that you sent your son to bring that light to us that we might experience it and participate in it. Forgive us for when we choose life on our own terms, when we run into the darkness, when we reject your light. God, draw us near so that in the midst of our darkness we might know the hope and the healing that Jesus has come to bring. God, bring us your light Meet us where we are so that we might step into life with you. As we enter into this week, God, for each and every one of us, help us think, and reflect, and ponder, and experience the liberation you came to this earth to bring us, the liberation that's available because of the truths of Easter. We respond appropriately with everything that we are, 
because you've given us all we could ever need and more. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 